Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go in, even go into the village. And then Jesus and his disciples were on, uh, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Let's pray. Our Father, this text, not just words on paper, but they are the inspired words that have been recorded for us, your people, that we might find in them profitable things to instruct us, to teach us, to shape and to mold us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, to be made more into his image, to go from glory to glory. Let us not stay with glory today, but pass on to greater glory. As we submit to your teachings wholeheartedly, denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following hard after Jesus, not, deter, not diverging to the left or the right, but following after him in everything. God, whether that leads to the top of the mountain or down into the darkest valley, whether that leads out into calm waters or rough seas, may our heart every single day beat with the one desire that where Jesus is, that's where we want to be. And so, God, take these, these words, use me, a weak clay vessel, and take these words, plant them into your people's hearts. May it grow up and bear fruit in each one of us. May each one of us humbly come before you today and say, what shall we do for you, Lord, and how shall we serve you today? May your word prevail in us, and may we go forth ambassadors of Jesus Christ in his precious and in his holy name we are praying to you this morning amen so this section uh, in my opinion that we're covering today really touches on the theme of 
how clearly do we see? And so the title of the sermon, I don't even know if we have it up. I never gave you the information. So the title of the sermon today is I See. Like, aha, I see. And the theme in each one of these three episodes that we've strung together has to do with how well are people seeing. During the Cold War in 1955, the CIA built a plane that could go higher than any other plane at that time or ever in history. And the purpose of the plane was to gather intel that was on the ground more than 70,000 feet below it. So it could climb up to 70,000 feet or higher. It would climb that high in order to avoid jets at that time and to avoid missiles, because no jet and no missile could go 70,000 feet at that time. And they wanted to survey what was beneath in foreign countries without getting shot down. The plane was called the U-2. It had an 80-foot wingspan, and it snapped pictures of the Earth below. And after returning from its first trip over the Soviet Union, on July 4, 1955, the pictures sent off alarm bells all throughout the upper echelons of the United States government. Everybody started wigging out, you could say. What was the reason? The pictures revealed something that they did not know and did not realize. The pictures showed that all of the missiles that the United States had aimed at Soviet targets were off by more than 25 miles. And in the event of war breaking out during the midst of the Cold War, that ever spilled onto open war, they were going to miss all their targets and probably themselves get leveled. Seeing clearly, it's vital to international affairs. But wouldn't you agree with me that seeing clearly is even more important in spiritual affairs? That we must have, as Jesus said, ears to hear, yes, but eyes to see as well. If we don't, we're going to come across danger. Now, our passage is covering uh, three events, well, two events. It's gonna, Jesus heals the blind man, right, which is pretty unique. This is kind of a funny one to pick for people that I've never preached in front of before because, I mean, how do you explain spitting on a guy's eyes, right? We'll try. There's got to be something in it for us. All scriptures God breathed, right? And apparently all scriptures sometimes is spit out as well. So we're going we're gonna to try and get this down. But then also we're going to see that Jesus rebukes Peter. It's that infamous event, that episode where Jesus had to put Peter in his place, you might say, because of Peter's uh, problem, because of his rebuke of Jesus, his way out of line rebuke of Jesus. So what's going to happen here? The, just as a summary, the first thing we see is Jesus heals this blind man. We're going to see that then they're going to move north and they go up to Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples and he explains to them, as he has done multiple times, it's not the first time, it's not going to be the last time, he, done it, he had done it over and over again, over the three years that he was ministering and they were following him around, he did it over and over again, telling them, look, the purpose for me coming is to be betrayed by the Jewish leaders, handed over to be crucified, I'm going to be dead three days, and after that I will be raised again. He, could have, he said it ad nauseum. And they never seem to get past the whole, I'm going to be crucified part. They didn't pay attention, they didn't listen after that. 
I combine these two sections together because both of them have to do with seeing. Everything in this text has to do with, with people not being able to see. The first man could not see physically. He was physically blind. And then in the conversation, Jesus points out, or the disciples point out to him, that the crowds, the masses of people who heard Jesus preach and followed him around even, they were blind. Not physically, but they didn't know who Jesus was. They were blind spiritually. And then it gets even closer to Jesus. It gets even closer to home, you could say. Like the, his inner circle of 12 men, they were blind. And that's how the passage ends, is the blindness of Peter, and by extension, the other 12 disciples. So I want to explore it through those three topics, or those three headings. Uh, the blind man, the blind crowds, and then the blind disciples. So we'll go through that, okay? So look at verses 22 through 26 with me again, okay? The blind man. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man, and they begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand. You just imagine that for a moment? Just kind of took him by the hand and began to gently, pastorally, lead him out someplace where they could be alone. Led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, I don't know how pastorally that is. I've never done that. I don't know if you've done that. That'd be pretty bold pastoring, you know what I mean? He put his hands on him and he asked Jesus, Do you see any? Or he asked if do you see anything? Man says, no, they look like trees. I can see people, but they look like trees. Jesus puts his hands on him. The guy gets his sight back. He sees clearly, and that's the situation there. I have to point out, and I have to admire, the crowds bringing this man to Jesus. If you get anything out of the Gospels, you see people continually bringing people to Jesus. Crowds of people, when Jesus comes into town, will say, I have somebody that you have to heal. You have to lay hands on this person. You have to meet this person. You have to see their problem. You have to do something about their problem. Because of their faith, they brought people to Jesus. Because they knew Jesus could do something about them. Jesus, you might say, might have been their last hope. He might have been their Hail Mary. He might have been the one that that they tried everything else, and you see that throughout the Gospels. People have tried everything. They've gone bankrupt. There was a woman who was bleeding who went bankrupt and was probably in debt to so many doctors trying to fix her problem. She tried every possible solution, and nothing could work until Jesus walked through town. And where I'm going with this is this, is that the people, wherever Jesus goes, mob Jesus, and it says here that they begged Jesus to place his hand on the man to heal him. And Jesus does and here's the point. Do not stop bringing people to Jesus. Who is lost in your life? You got a wayward son or daughter? You got a spouse that doesn't walk with the Lord? You have a mother or a father that doesn't have the same faith as you? Do you have people who are neighbors around you that you're thinking, I would love for nothing more. If I could be cut off from Christ, like Paul said, I would wish that I could be cut off from Christ for them to be saved, right? How, who are you bringing to Jesus? Who, because of your faith, like the crowds, do you continually bring, repeatedly bring, and beg Jesus to come into their life? It makes you wonder, like, salvation's in the Bible. You think of, like, the Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus. He's on his way there. He's going he's gonna to slaughter Christians and imprison Christians, men, women, children. It didn't matter. 
His whole motivation was to take out Christianity. But I want to know who in Christianity at that time had been praying for Paul's salvation. Saul at the time, right? Who was praying for that enemy of Christ, that Christ would reveal himself to that man? And so my question to us today is, who are we bringing to Jesus Christ? Man, if you know Jesus can do something, if you know that Jesus is the answer to this person's life, that they need salvation, and they need to come from the dark into the light, and it's like they are not living, they are, they are so far from God, and they need God, and they need Jesus Christ to come into their life. Why would you stop spending your breath before the throne on their behalf while they still have breath and can repent? Be devoted being like this crowd. There's something to learn from these crowds as you read through the Gospels. I love these crowds. The second application I would bring out in this is, is we have to bring others to the Lord. And here's the key. Leave them with him. You notice how they bring the man to Jesus? And then Jesus, they hand him off, so to speak. And then Jesus takes him away from them. Jesus takes him away from them. And they had to step back and let him go with Jesus and leave him in Jesus' hands. There's something we do sometimes, isn't it, when, when we're full of anxiety about things? We tend to give things to the Lord one day. And the next day we what? Take it back. We want to control it. We want to take it. But these people were leaving this man they loved in Jesus' hands. They had to trust that the Lord would do with their friend what he decided was best. I love how Helen was praying this morning for, uh, for was it Declan? For Declan. And how, Helen, you just so beautifully prayed, like, Lord, we know you can, but it's your will what you're going to do with him. And we trust you and know you're good, whether you answer our prayers or you don't. We're leaving him in your hands. And we're not going to stop praying to you, Lord. We're not going to stop. We're going to be like that widow in Luke 18, right? The widow in Luke 18, who Jesus said she kept going to the judge back and forth again and again. She's like, I mean, John and I are over there with her. There's something admirable in that woman's tenacity, isn't there? She kept bringing to him the only one who could do anything about her situation, she kept petitioning him. Some might argue pestering him. And that's what we need to do with Jesus, the kind of tenacity to continually come before him and pray to him. So leave him, leave those people with Jesus. Now what happens here in this text is interesting, and maybe that's why he led <laughs> the man away from the crowds because he didn't want him to see what he was about to do. Uh, but he goes and he spits on the guy's eyes. And I actually have to wonder, in that moment, did he warn him before he did it? All right, now listen, I just want to heal you here. <laughs> you know, like, whoa, whoa. But here's the thing. I don't know what to make of it. But I'll tell you this. Jesus can do whatever he wants, however he wants, with me. If he's going to heal my blindness, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. If you're not going to. I don't know what would motivate him. It seems like the guy is able to see. Do you notice in the text? Like he starts to see at first, and it's, it's like a two-phase miracle. It's like Jesus spits on his eyes, and then the guy opens his eyes, 
and he can sort of see, and people look like trees walking around, which is an interesting description, isn't it? He knows that they're people, but it's interesting because it almost seems like he maybe saw at one time earlier in his life, so he recognized that what he was looking at were indeed people. And what you have is you have, a, you have Jesus spits in his eyes, he can't see clearly, so Jesus then puts his hands on the man's eyes, and then he opens his eyes, and he can see clearly. And you have this two-phase miracle that Jesus does. I don't see any other miracle that Jesus does like that. I've never seen him spit in a guy's ears, spit on a woman's knees, you know what I mean, to make her walk. You never see him like, I never saw him walk up to a woman who couldn't walk and kick her. All right, off you get. You know what I mean? Or the guy who was lowered down on the raft. It wasn't like you rolled him off the raft and said, now you get up. I mean, there was, there was none of that going on, nothing like that. And you never see it in like a two-phase miracle. Jesus did, here's the thing. It's not like Jesus needed a do-over in this moment. Like, oh, man, not like a doctor will say, we'll prod and poke and sort of check this and check that, and he'll have you try this and then see how it affects you, and then he sort of modifies his treatment and goes, okay, let's try this instead, because that didn't seem to work. That's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus was not trying to figure it out on the fly. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. We, we know that from Scripture. So the question is, why was he doing it, Right? And you know that he could have healed the guy instantaneously. Because he would oftentimes just say a word. Woman, you can go home. She probably traveled several hours to get there. Your daughter is healed. Just by long distance, a word from his mouth, a daughter would be healed. Guy would come up, and Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Get up, take your mat, and walk. Just the spoken word of Jesus, he could heal somebody. Why would he need to do it twice? He even, he even healed accidentally, you could say. And I'm using the word loosely. But you had the woman who was bleeding. And remember, and, and he was walking, and there were, uh, he, it was like the paparazzi all around him all the time. You know, people were pressing in on him all the time. And no matter where he went, there's this massive crowd that was pushing on him. And this woman snuck through the crowd, and she's like, if I can just touch his robe. And she touched his robe, and she was instantly healed. Like, Jesus didn't intend to do that. Like, that was her walking up in faith, grabbing his, his robe, and being healed. It's like, Jesus could have done this instantaneously. Why did it go through two phases? And I didn't get it. And then I'm thinking, okay, if I'm going to get anything out of this, here's what I would say. We are seeing a picture of the progressive nature of spiritual sight. The man did not see perfectly at first, but then... He saw perfectly afterwards. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says, I know in part now, then in the future I shall know fully. And this completely connects the passage of what's the, the things that are happening in this whole text right here. What you're seeing in the text is you're seeing people who know in part, but they don't know in full. They see sort of right now, Things are a little bit fuzzy to them. They know what they're looking at, but they don't see it clearly. The crowds know that they are looking at someone who has come from God, but they don't understand who Jesus is. The disciples know, as Peter has declared, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the hope of Israel, right? And you got that right, Peter, but he doesn't see the purpose for which Jesus Christ came. He only sees him somewhat, but not fully clear. So then we get into the second part, okay? Uh, the blind crowds. And go to verse 27 and 28. 
Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Remember, there's always a large crowd around Jesus, and Jesus wasn't around everyone all the time. And you could say, humanly speaking, that sort of like the disciples were his eyes and ears in the middle of the crowd, and they were always picking up and able to sort of get the down low on where people were at and where the crowd was. They were like uh, uh, ongoing pollsters, you might say, as they just heard from the people what their thoughts were about who Jesus was. And so Jesus says, who do the crowd say that I am? And they give, they give some answers. They say, well, from some people we're hearing, they think that you're Elijah, come back. Because remember, the Israelites had this expectation and the anticipation of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who was swirled off from this earth by chariots of fire, didn't die a death like we all die. He was going to come back before the Messiah came. That was their expectation. So they thought Jesus was Elijah. They knew he was from God. They knew there was something supernatural about him. There was, there was something more to him than, than, than what we all have going for us. But they didn't know what, specifically. They were confused. Some other people thought that he was, uh, uh, Herod, the, Herod actually thought that he was John the Baptist. And Herod was freaking out. And if you go back in the few chapters earlier, Herod started to wig out because Herod thought, hey, I cut John the Baptist's head off. And he's back. Right? Like, you don't sleep at night if, that, if you're Herod at that point. Like, you know, I mean, like, you got more guards all around you. So Herod, uh, he thought he was John the Baptist. Other explanations were that Jesus was the resurrected prophet from the Old, some resurrected prophet from the Old Testament. If you go and you go into, like, John chapter 7, for instance, you'll find that people had even more opinions of Jesus. They thought that he was a good man. They thought that he was the Christ. They thought he was a new prophet who'd never been around before. Some thought he was a deceiver. Some thought he was a, a demon-possessed Samaritan, which was a serious put-down. Okay? Not the demon-possessed part, that was bad enough. But to call him a Samaritan, that was bad. Right? So they were, they were really making a slam on Jesus. Some said he was raving mad and that he needed to be arrested. One thing the people were certain of, though, one thing that all the polls seemed to be strongly suggesting is that the people understood Jesus was somehow empowered by God. In John chapter 7, it says, but no one would say anything publicly negative about Jesus, okay, for fear of the Jews, talking about the leaders. In other words, the leaders were not yet ready to say anything publicly negative about Jesus because they were afraid of the crowds, because the crowds held him in high honor. Application. This is just the one simple application that we'll pull out from this. Don't depend on the crowd for your understanding of who Jesus Christ is. I heard a guy say to me one time uh, that I was witnessing to, um, he said, look, I was in a taxi in Texas one time, and uh, the guy who was driving the taxi was trying to tell me that the word son of God, the word son just simply means like the rising sun. It doesn't mean like the Son of God, like God the Father and God the Son. I'm going, did you even look into that? You know? I'm like, hey, buddy, you might want to check that out before you go with what the crowd says. You know? What are we saying? Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is who the Word of God reveals him to be. He is the Word of God made flesh. 
And this is the word of God written down. That is the perfect and full revelation of who he is. If you and I want to know Jesus Christ, and if you and I want to know God, to know his mind, to know his purposes, to know who he is, what he has done, what he is going to do, God has revealed all of that to us right here on the pages of Scripture. This is not like, this, uh, we were talking to some guy yesterday uh, as we were handing out tracts, and, and, and the gentleman was telling me, it was a fascinating conversation, I'll tell you that, but he said to me that, that this is just the words of men who got high and then wrote down everything that, they, that came to their minds and, the, and described the experiences they had because they were high. They ate some mushrooms that they grew. I'm not going to tell you where the mushrooms grew. But in, in because, of, because of their experiences with the occult or because of the experiences with their, with, their, uh, um, with, with their drug use and things like that, he said, this right here is not God's word. He said, we're all God. And these are just men that wrote what's down on the pages of Scripture. Listen, you and I, we should not get our opinions of who Jesus Christ is from the mainstream media. We should not get our opinions from social media. We should not get our opinions from what the crowds out there want to say about who Jesus Christ is because everybody's got an opinion about Jesus. We don't care what somebody's opinion is. There are a lot of people who want Jesus to be a reflection of who they are. A lot of people want Jesus Christ to be somehow in, made in their image because they can approve of a Jesus like that far more than the Jesus that's on the pages of Scripture. One of the ways you can, under, you can know that you or someone else probably is born again and belongs, belongs to God is if they trust in God's word with all their heart and believe that this is what truth is right here. I can be deceived, but the word of God does not deceive. And the word of God makes me wise unto salvation. It makes me wise to understand truth and to understand righteousness and how God wants me to live to please him. And if that's what the aim of my life is, then I will come humbly to this and I will submit and say, this isn't, this isn't something that affirms me. This is something that affirms God and his truth. And it only affirms me so long as I conform to it. Am I ready to be confronted by it? That's one of the things we need to consider. Get your understanding of Jesus and understand who he is from him in his word, not from the crowds. And finally, how late do I get to go to? I think you were saying we go for like an hour and a half, two hours. Seven o'clock? Bedtime for the kids. <laughs> yeah. When you said like an hour and a half, two hours, I'm like, oh, wow, maybe I get to preach that long. And then I'm like, no, no, the music's really good. That's probably what they want, more music, right? <laughs> yeah, you guys are doing great. Um, okay, the blind, no, seriously, though, I'm at, we're at 12 o'clock. How long do I go to? I'm good? Okay. The final, where were we, uh, Mark? Let's get back to Mark. Mark chapter 8. We're going to get to our final point here, our final heading, and that is the blind disciples. And follow along with me here as I read 
verse 29 through 33. But what about you? So Jesus turns the question now on the disciples themselves. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then Jesus began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. I don't have something in my notes, so let me pause right there and point it out. Do you notice that Jesus started by, by making them identify who he is before he told them what he was going to do? In your, in your Christian life and in my Christian life, as we follow Jesus Christ and as we live for God, it is paramount that we understand that there is no living for God that is not born out of knowing God and who he is. My faithfulness to Jesus Christ needs to rise out of my knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Like, you are the Son of God. Yes, Peter, you got that right. Jesus wasn't going to go further until they understood, this is who I am. We have to see clearly who Jesus is. It starts with like that Isaiah moment in Isaiah 6 when, when Isaiah is taken up into the throne room of God, right? And all of a sudden he sees the, the, the Almighty One, the Eternal One, sitting on his throne. The Holy One, right? And Isaiah, do you know what he said? <laughs> Isaiah says, Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is not like, woe is not like some low caliber expression of, hey, this is a bad situation. This is from the bones of my soul, I am coming undone. I am unraveling literally as my eyes behold the holy creator on his throne. I want to get away from him because I see him in all of his holiness. And I see, therefore, all of my sin. That's why he says, Woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Holy One. And I now see what I am for what I am. You see, there's this relationship between seeing God and his holiness and seeing ourselves and our great morality. The, 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 the less I see God in his true holiness, the greater estimation of who I am and all my morality and all my spirituality and my pridefulness will go up. But like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Gideon, like Peter, like every single person who has truly seen with their eyes the living God, when they see God's glory exalted right in front of their very eyes, they have no estimation of their own worthiness. None. What did Peter say to Jesus? Peter said to Jesus in Luke chapter, I think it's like four or something, he said, he said, get away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. And I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. That's the kind of sight that we need to have. And it's like there's no living for Jesus Christ until we have beheld him in all of his glory. That's why John the Baptist, John the Baptist, remember what he said in John chapter 1? He's like, he's dunking people, right? He's like, just an assembly line of people, right? Just baptizing, you know, all right, you, you know, and he's somewhere like floating away trying to swim. And he's just getting them on, he like sort of getting them to the deacons or whoever they're helping and just... Doing it. All of a sudden, Jesus comes walking out of the woods in Luke or John chapter 1. And Jesus, or John the Baptist, he's dunking a guy. 
and he sees Jesus, right? I wonder if he left the guy there, because he's like, behold, right? Remember what he says? The Lamb of God, who what? Who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Notice what he says first. He says the identity of Jesus. Then out of that, he says what Jesus does. Look, you guys, the Lamb of God, the one who is going to be sacrificed, whose blood is going to be shed in the place of sinners, and in the place of sinners, when he dies, he will strip us of all of our guilt before a holy God. So that when we begin by seeing God and we're mortified before him, when our guilt is taken away, we stand before him in fellowship, reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. See? We have to see Jesus Christ first. Whoa. Did you record that? We're going to send that to our church. Yeah, we're going to do a little more clapping, right? I'm like, that's not... Yeah, quick, hit record. <laughs> Amen, Jesus. I'm doing it again. I lost my place. Okay, so who, why he came to suffer and die, right? So, so Jesus is informing them about his, you know, who he is, right? I'm... He, they know that, they got that, and then he says he's coming to suffer and to die, and they can't get their heads wrapped around it, yet, ironically, they should have known this because all of the Old Testament scriptures testified about the coming Savior and his suffering. Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus even comes, the Messianic Psalm says, a band of evil men has surrounded me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And the, the, the Cadillac of all of this whole theme, Isaiah 53, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Can you see the substitutionary language? Justin, you were removed from the place where God's wrath was going to come crashing down on you, and Jesus stepped in. You deserve to stand there, Justin. And he has yet done nothing deserving of God's punishment, willingly stepping forth. That's what that chapter is saying, right? It goes on. It says, uh, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The beauty of that passage, yeah, amen to that. I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine who has not accepted Christ, and he says, that's talking about the nation of Israel. I said, Harvey, it is not talking about the nation of Israel. When did the nation of Israel ever suffer for the sins of the Gentiles as a substitute? Never. It's talking about one man. One man dying for all men and taking away the sins of many. Peter's having none of it, though, right? right? Back in our passage. He ain't going to put up with this. Sometimes your leaders need to be set straight, right? That's what Peter's thinking. Sometimes they got to be pulled aside and have a little huddle. And that's what Peter does. He's like, grabs him by the elbow, get over here. You know, he saw, the, he saw Jesus take the blind man aside, and Peter's like, I'm going to do that to Jesus. He grabs Jesus, pulls him aside. You see these guys? We've left everything 
to follow you. Wives, property, careers, everything. We have followed you for three years. What are you doing talking about dying some martyr's death? That's not in the plan. The plan is you become king, we get great positions in this new administration, and we live gloriously over the whole world. That's the plan. What are you talking about being betrayed, suffering at the hands of the leaders, and getting crucified? Let's put an end to that kind of talk right now, Jesus. We won't be having any more of that. Right? I'm like, good. You know how Peter, he just doesn't have a filter. <laughs> you know what I mean? So while Peter's having none of it uh, from Jesus, Jesus is having none of it from Peter. Get behind me, Peter. Satan. And you have to think for a moment about the knife that Jesus just took and stabbed into Peter's heart. the most loyal, the great, loyal Peter. I will follow you unto death, he would say later that night, right? If these guys abandon you, I will follow you even unto death. And listen, he meant that. He meant that. That's another sermon, though, to explain why he faltered in that. His own human strength was his loyalty. But what are you and I all by ourselves in our own human strengths? We're nothing. We're pawns in Satan's game. And the pride of Peter in that moment that was born out of his ignorance of Jesus' purpose and the pride of Peter's own plan for what Jesus should be doing was being exploited by Satan to become an obstacle to Jesus. Jesus was tempted personally by the devil in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, and he passed with flying colors, did he not? Satan is no match for Jesus. But Satan does not quit. So at the end of his ministry, knowing that he cannot go head on with Jesus, he thought, maybe I can use those closest to Jesus to thwart his purpose. And so Satan used Peter. Isn't it sad that Satan oftentimes uses God's people against God and against God's people? It is a sad thing to observe, but too often the people of God can be the biggest obstacles. And it's usually in our pride, you guys. It's usually in our pride. Humility is the arch virtue of the Christian faith. Humility. When our minds are not on the things of God, our minds are on the things of men and the things of the world, and therefore we are vulnerable to manipulation by the enemy. Because did you notice what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in your mind, Peter, the things of God. The things of God are not the things that you are thinking about in this moment. Here's an application. We must be mindful of our minds. What does it say? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3. 
Therefore, set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts, right, on heaven above, on Christ above, right? The whole life of the Christian is meant to have our heads literally in heaven, right, is the one way of putting it. What does Romans chapter 12, verse 2 say? It says, it says this, be transformed by the renewing of your, your mind, right? right? Your mind is critical. And it's not just, yeah, yeah, I can check off all the boxes on a doctrinal statement. I know that Jesus is the Son of God. I know he's the second person of the Trinity. I can articulate it as good as any Puritan out there, right? I, can, I, can, I, can, I know that the Bible is the inspired and infallible and inerrant. I know what all those big words mean. And I can check all these boxes and I can write everything out very well. But if I do not understand that Jesus came to do what Jesus came to do and not what I intend for him to do, then I am a pawn in the hand of Satan. And Satan's favorite tools satan's favorite weapons are not pagan unbelievers the greatest joy are those who are closest to and belong to jesus christ when they get their minds off the things of god and get their minds on the things of the world no one who loves the world loves god first john chapter 2 says do not love the world do not have your mind on the things of the world Here's just one application. I'll just, maybe I'll just finish with this because I'm. My church would be very upset if I preached shorter here than I would there. So, so we're going to end right here. So I'm gonna, you told us you couldn't. You know, this would. They're awesome. They put up with me. Here's an application. Let's end it with this. Understanding spiritual seeing, spiritual sight having what the Bible calls understanding comes from surrendering our intellectual pride. Wisdom comes when we relinquish trying to make God what we want him to be. And we accept him for who he reveals himself to be. And we accept his purposes as he reveals them to be. We surrender to him. Let me pray. Our Father, how can we not, like so many, when our eyes see Jesus painted on the pages of scriptures, how can we not feel ashamed? He is so great. May we each know the blessing of having been convicted that we are not great like him. It isn't until, Lord, we are stepping out of the way and our eyes come off from ourselves and off from the things of this world and rest on him in all of his glory. God, that we begin to, we begin to truly have understanding, that we truly are no longer blind and we truly see. And so I pray today that you are opening eyes I pray, Father, that you're opening ears. I pray, Father, that you are opening hearts, just like the woman Lydia in the Bible, down by the river when she heard the good news of Christ. And I pray, Father, that today, 
this is a place where people are receiving Jesus Christ and coming into eternal life through faith in him. God, this wonderful group of believers, I pray your blessings would be poured out abundantly on. I pray that there would be a deep unity and love that they share for each other as brothers and sisters in the faith. I pray, Father, that they would have a mutual, a mutual and shared love for you as first in their lives. And I pray that the peace of Christ that transcends all understanding, that isn't dependent upon circumstances in this world, Lord, would be theirs. Lord, as there is peace with you through Jesus Christ, may the peace of Jesus Christ rule in their hearts and in their fellowship. Lord, Brian and I are just loving meeting each and every one of these brothers and sisters. And truly, they have made us so welcome. And God, it is a joy to know these co-laborers and these co-heirs in Christ Jesus. And so God, we pray for, for your purposes to prevail, for the encouragement that we have in the faith, and through your spirit to be theirs. So Lord, um, we pray these things. We pray them through Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.